Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 9-26-2021. We're continuing where we left off, and uh, we will continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Order of the week. When a person is working hard for something they want, they develop a sense of pride and accomplishment then they feel a sense of entitlement because they think they have labored and now have earned it, and now earned it. Now, when a, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. When someone works, an obligation is created. That sense that you should be paid for, paid or rewarded for your efforts is proper. If you work, you should be paid. But that is not great. Salvation is a gift. Given in grace, and God does not give this gift based on your merit or effort. When that person realizes they are working for something that is free, there is strong resistance that will say that all their works or productive. All that time with praying, giving, Bible study, and all that, the other religious activities done to secure a home with God is simply a huge waste of time. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God to justify the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Trust God is through works, and honestly, working excludes trusting God. Also, notice the function of the faith that saves or brings righteousness is expressed in trusting God. The Bible says that salvation is by grace, a free gift, and not by our efforts. The person has ignored that and pursue salvation on their own merit. Whenever we ignore God's way and trust on our way, we are simply arrogant. Why well, can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge? Please do not walk away from these principles of grace. If you do, you will never experience God's salvation. In expressing grace of blessings, embrace salvation by grace, and know that anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Only then would you be able to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. Taken from Second Peter chapter three verse eighteen. Well we all we know and those who don't know salvation is a free gift. Salvation Technically, it's not free because we know Christ paid for the humanity of Christ paid for our sins that God gives them. So, believing in Christ is the only way of salvation. Trusting and believing in Him after hearing the gospel depends on your attitude towards what God the Father has given about us. The Bible clearly says that whoever believes in Him 
will have salvation. Whoever does not believe shall not be saved, and the good and the God's wrath remains on him. So you have an opportunity to believe in Christ at this particular moment. You haven't done so. So this depends upon you and God, not men, not the church you're involved with, or no anything else. But believing in Christ is the only way of salvation. We know that salvation is free, it's by God's grace, and it's merit. But it's the way of the only true way of salvation, by believing in Christ and trusting in Him, the only way of salvation. So I just thought I'd like to head it over to the White and give us a word of prayer. Thank you very much, Dave, for the thought of the week and also your commentary there. Much appreciated. Um, I know we have we may have specific requests. Um, please keep those in your in your mind and on your heart as we come before God in prayer. Dear Father, I, I pray that you um, would give us special opportunity to understand your grace for us, even as it goes beyond salvation, that we would know the love of Christ that exceeds knowledge and that we would grow to maturity and into the fullness of God, into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And I pray also not only for us on call, but all is, all of word is to the church, um, wherever they may be. Um, may your, may your uh, spirit be successful in drawing them closer to you. And I pray also for the church worldwide, around the whole world there are people coming to salvation all the time, or people who have been in salvation, have been saved, um, and could grow in grace and truth and uh, understand the mystery, why we have been called and what we are called for. Let our hearts be focused on the gifts that you've given us, uh, the tremendous gift of, of this time and the teaching capability of, of our pastor and also our own humility uh, thank you for um, using those things to draw us closer into all truth as the Spirit guides us. And we pray that our, the, the ears of our hearts would be open um, as we look, listen for more detail and, and more uh, profoundness in, in the glory into which you have called us. And uh, lastly, I want to pray for our, our welfare. Uh, whether physical, spiritual, financial, uh, travel-related. You know our needs down here. This is a, a tough world to live in. Um, there are, the enemy is, is taking a lot of pop shops around the world and at everybody. And uh, I ask that you would help us to keep focused on why we are here and also to have the same attitude as Paul that we don't consider these and these mere affliction compared to the weight of the glory that awaits us. And let us focus on Christ and things that are above. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen, Dwight. All right. We are going to continue. Thank you, uh, Dwight and Dave. We're going to continue with um, our notes. We should have notes. And the scripture we're focused on is, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. That's John 
16:28. When we begin to see the eternal plan, we can now adjust our limited insight and see things from God's perspective. The ability to see God's perspective comes with his personal means to reveal himself through God the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit enlightening us, we would not and could not know anything about the eternal purpose of God. If you have been learning of the Father's plan, you should know that God is working in our lives. To know the things of things that extend beyond our time and space, beyond our capability to know, depends on God's revelation through the spirit of truth. Quote, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. That's in 1 Corinthians 2.13. While we may pat ourselves on the back for our sharp perception of the eternal plan, never forget where we came from and what it took for God to bring us forward to this point in time. So we're going to look at this verse. It seems to be a short verse, but it reminds me of a whole lot of things of which I will um, go through as we as we begin to dig into this. So let's move forward. We had a lot of scriptures here, but um, I would say you, this will be more of a review for us. I came from the Father. The first thought is Jesus was with the Father before all things existed. And there's a couple verses. If we go to John 1, and most people have read John 1, 1 through 3, but let's look at it again. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word. So obviously, if the Word was, he is not talking about the beginning of the Word or the beginning of God. He's just talking about a beginning. And if we look in the context, we can know what beginning he's referring to. He's referring to creation. And it, there is no beginning of the word. So in the beginning, in this beginning, the word already existed. The word was. And the word was with God. So now, to be with God, it is to say, is another personality that we have, and the word is face-to-face -face with this person. And when we think about that, we can understand, especially from the scriptures that we have, about how we were created before time began, chosen him, right? This wisdom was destined for our glory before time began, or we, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. We can figure out what they were doing face to face with one another. Obviously, we know the Holy Spirit was there as well, but it's not mentioned. He's not mentioned here. But we are seeing these two personalities. One was called the Word, and the other one is the God. And there's a definite article in front of God. And the Word at the end of verse 1, was God. So there is no definite article in front of God in the second phrase. 
and the word was God. So that is to say the word is not the same as the person he was with. <laughs> the word was different from the person he was with, but he was essentially God. So there you have two who are, uh, before time began, before creation, are said to be God. And what were they doing? We now know what they were doing, at least part of it, because they were planning the creation of all things. And what would be the result? What did they want from the creation of all things? So John 1.1, without, without understanding it, can, you can read it pretty simply, but when you understand some of the things that we have, been given by the spirit of truth it's pretty deep isn't it point number two a verse number two he was with God in the beginning there it is he was with God in the beginning another statement about how the word was along with God in the beginning what's the beginning creation he was already there they were all it was this is not the beginning of the word as some Jehovah's Witness would try to say or they try to say, where it says, and the word was God. They put, and the word was a God. And they put a small g on God. That's, that's blasphemous to think about it. But that's what they've done. And verse number three. Through him, through who? Through the word, all things were made. Notice, through him. In other words, it was not only his thought to make all things. It was the Father's plan that all things come into existence. And his plan involves intention, purpose. All of these things reflect where Christ made the world. It was through him. So obviously the agent of creation was Christ. The planner of all things is the Father's plan. So through him, all things were made. I love this statement because you can't get around it. There's nothing you can do to get around this statement. Without him, and who's him? Christ. Nothing was made that has been made. So everything that was created came through Christ. And, and if it didn't come that way, then it wasn't part of creation. <laughs> you can't even... Christ didn't create himself. He couldn't have. He created all things. All things don't include his person. And then there's Colossians 1. And you, if you didn't know the creation scriptures, you do now. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 or so. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Wow. The firstborn over all creation. So... The, the sun is the image of the invisible God. That term is to say that Christ is the visible of the invisible. The manifestation of Christ in when we saw him where it says uh, he, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we saw his glory and so forth. That's in John 1. Well, for the Son to be the image of the invisible God is also a reference to creation. 
because you couldn't know about God unless you looked at creation. So when you looked at creation, like it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork. It says all this about creation because creation is a visible way of knowing and seeing who God is. Christ was the author of creation. So it points to the person of Christ. All creation, we, we can now see that we can look up at the stars, we can look up at the heavens, and we can see that God exists. Right? Romans 1 says it. It says, it's a, I could jump over to Romans 1 really quick, where it says, says it this way. Uh, for since, verse 20, 120, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So notice the invisible. So when it says Christ is the image of the invisible God, that is only a creation is is one side of that, that put people don't see. Because all things were made through Christ. And, and it reflects on, Christ's work reflects on the invisible God. So here, we're back to Colossians 1.15. So just looking at that one verse, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. And what firstborn here means preeminent one over all creation. Christ was never born, not, not when it came to creation. <laughs> like the Jehovah Witnesses, again, have uh, done harm to this verse. Uh, hopefully you don't have to deal with that, but one day you might. Anyway, the firstborn over all creation. Christ is the preeminent one. Why, why is that? Because he's the creator, that's why. Verse 16, for in him... All things were created. Now, uh, you get to this. uh, So Christ created, he's the creator. And so God executed creation through Christ. And then what, what do we mean all things? For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him. And these last three words, and for him. These words speak of the Father's eternal purpose. Because the Father invested everything in the person of Christ. And so it is for him. Because this is the Father's eternal purpose to bring many sons into glory. No sons would be conformed to the very image of his son, Christ. So then it goes on to say, he is before all things. In other words, he, he's not part of all things. He's before. He, came, he, he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. All creation is bound up in this one, the person of God. And we're talking about God the Son. God the Son, the title doesn't make him less than God the Father. Because when we read in Philippians, it says he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. 
or grasped, like clung to. Because he allowed himself to take the role where he would be submissive to the father in order to accomplish the father's purposes. So the son, the father's son and the spirit, all those roles are designations for the father's plan. But equally, they are all God. And they all present to us the plan that is to be rolled out in this way. He's, and I could continue, he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So back to our notes, I know we're kind of straying. So that was the first point that uh, Jesus was, was with the Father before all things existed. There's a lot more that could be said about those verses and we'll get to that. Point B, yes, Jesus is a human being born into our world in the same way we were. So in John uh, 1.14, when he's talking about he came from the Father, he's not talking about his preeminence as um, creation. He's talking about when he came as a human being. And John 1.14 says that, says, uh, we, we've already, if you, these are one of, one of the verses that is commonly known. Here it is, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. There it is, where Jesus is saying, I came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we think about um, this, you could say, well, how did he come from the Father? Well, the Gospels have the narrative. How um, Mary became pregnant, how she was told Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because of, you know, making sure everybody of record had to be, you know, they had to count everybody of record for tax purposes. So the, the, they had to travel and so forth. So we know the story of how Christ came into the world. He literally was born into this world, just like we were. So there's no difference. He was a human being, just like we are. So that brings another point. <clears throat> so how could Christ be a human being when he preexisted? Uh, he took on human nature, that's how. And the the kind of person that he was when he took the body has to be the same kind of persons that we are who also have been born and have a body. So there's some distinctions here. When Christ took on human nature, he became a human being with all humans' limitations and such, just like we have limitations as human beings. Christ had limitations as well. But Christ is the same as us, even though he preexisted, just like we read in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, before all things existed, was the word. He was there before creation. And yet, the same person became flesh, made his abode, his dwelling among us, one of us. That's, that is to say that the person 
is the same kind of persons that we are. Otherwise, we would have a problem, wouldn't we? Christ could not be a true man if he didn't have the same kind of person, essentially, that we are. Like when a new baby is born into this world, we say, oh, there's another human being. When Christ was born into this world, we say, oh, there's another human being born. And he's just like us in every respect. He's a human being, just like we are. Let's continue. I think we're at, well, yeah, so he was a human being born into this world in the same way we were, but he is obviously more. So we, we know Christ has two natures. He is, he is God, and at the same time, he is also a human being. We can't take it away. We can't take away his divine nature, otherwise he wouldn't be God. If we took a, one aspect of his divine nature away, he wouldn't be God. Just like if he took one aspect of his human nature away, he wouldn't be human. So he is two natures. He has two natures. One person forever. Point C. His coming from the Father speaks of more than the fact that he existed and always will as God. He can't change being God. Remember we read in Colossians, all things uh, consist or are held together in him. In other words, he is the glue that keeps all creation going. Without Christ, all creation would just disintegrate into nothingness because God, the Son, hold all things together. So who used to say it like this, when you point your finger at somebody, your finger doesn't fly off your, your hand. And what holds that finger together is Christ, the power of Christ. We need God in order to maintain the universe. He didn't just create the universe and just go off on vacation somewhere. He is needed. That verse says, he is needed to sustain the universe, to hold the proper order of things in the universe together. And that's a huge task. If you look out in the universe, we can't even look that far. But, but as far as we can see, we can tell you, I can tell you it's very complex. Point C. His coming from the Father speaks of more than the fact that he existed and always will as God, but it also speaks of his coming to execute the Father's eternal purpose. That's what Christ is saying when he says, I came from the Father. He's not just saying, well, I'm just telling you what my location was, and now here it is, I'm here in the world. What he's saying in saying this is, I came to do the Father's will. I came to execute the Father's plan, his eternal purpose. Because right after this phrase, he's saying, I came from the Father into the world, but I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father, meaning I've completed the task that the Father has given me. That's how we have to understand what Christ's words, I came from the Father. Why? We could ask. Because the Father planned that there would be some things that Christ would accomplish. And, and that's important for us to know. It's, it's coming to execute the Father's eternal purpose. It wasn't just, I'm just here. Point D, Jesus, 
did not just come, he was sent by the Father. So, again, it's according to, the plan, to a plan. If someone sends you somewhere, you have to wonder why. Even though it's not all spelled out for us right here, you have to know that there is a plan involved. There's something that uh, that person who sent you uh, has for you to do at your destination. And so it is with Christ. John 6, 28 through 33. So 6, 28 through 33. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now, remember, this is where Jesus multiplied the fishes and the loaves and everybody had their fill. I'm sure everybody ate well that day. But the next day they were hungry again and they wanted another miracle so that they could eat again. So verse 27 says, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life. So now Jesus had fed them, now he's getting ready to give them the gospel. That's what he's trying to do, but their minds are focused on other things, which the Son of Man will give you for uh, on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. That's verse 27, 627. 28 says, they asked him, what must we do to, to do the works God requires? Well, this is... Christ sums it up by saying the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent that's what you got to do believing is not a work how did the Jews respond so they asked him what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you what will you do now remember just remember I would have this is where I would have lost it. I would have smote all of them, or smoked all of them. <laughs> I would have just said, forget it. You guys are dull. I'm not going to put up with you anymore. And lightning should have come from heaven and zapped them all. Because what were they just doing? They were coming to ask Christ for another sign because they just ate up all the food. They ate all they wanted. Remember, after they collected, it was 12 baskets of food left after Jesus made the miracle. So then they came and wanted him to do another miracle. When Christ told them who he was, they said, what sign will you show us? I said, you know what? I'm going to show you a sign. i got a sign for you. I'm going to turn you all into bread. I would have lost it, but thank God we can continue the narrative. Jesus did not lose it. Let's, can, let's see what he said. Anyway, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it... As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'm glad they're quoting scripture. Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Remember, he's sent by the Father. 
For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So this is the same thing we're talking about. Jesus is saying, I came from the Father. Notice, he's fully aware of why he came. These people he's talking to are not. So, so this is what they say in verse 31. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They are totally ignorant of what Christ was saying. What are you talking about? They're talking about literal food. Then Jesus declared, I, me, not the bread I created from the fishes and the loaves. Me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This can only mean salvation. And you can have salvation by believing, just like Christ told him earlier, in the one he has sent. So, problem, these people didn't understand. Verse 36, but as I told you, oh, before we go there, just notice the permanence of salvation once you get it. You will never be thirsty and never go hungry. You won't have to... Salvation is completely satisfied once a person receives it. Never hungry, never thirsty. But as I told you, verse 36, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those, so we're, we're going to con continue with the thought of this, but I think you have the idea of where Jesus is trying to tell them he was sent by the Father. So back to our notes. Verse, uh, point number two in our notes says, um, and so, so, so the phrase is, I came from the Father and entered the world. So there is a, a scripture that should be quoted. Um, it is in 1 Timothy 3.16. You don't have to turn to it because I've quoted it right here for you in the notes. And this is what it says. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. So think about that one phrase right there. It's beyond all question means you, you cannot, there's nothing more to be said. This satisfies it completely. And here it is, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Now, what are we talking about? Mystery, mystery from which true godliness springs. He's talking about Christ, the life of Christ. Because Christ is the one who brings righteousness. Now, we could say it another way. He fulfills all righteousness. The righteous demands of God that uh, he has have been completely fulfilled in the person of Christ. So when we think about the lifestyle of Christ, the what, how he pleased the Father, all of that has been satisfied in the person of Christ. Then it goes on. He appeared in the flesh. This is how he did it. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. This is a constant refrain that they repeated. It's like a song. 
It's 1 Timothy 3, 16. It's about our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know how you can read this and walk away thinking that there's any sufficiency in any other means or any other person given among men whereby we must be saved. Point B of and entered the world. How can the eternal God enter time and the human race? How did he do it? What's the answer to that? It's called the incarnation. So we're going to review Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. Now we've got to turn to Hebrews. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 10, 5 through 10. How did this happen? How could the eternal God who existed before all things, for all eternity. He always existed. How could he enter our time and space? Here it is, Hebrews 10, 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, there it is right there, the first phrase, when he came into the world, he said, well, we know how he came into the world, right? We read it in the Gospels, the beginning, right? We talked about the story of how the angel hovered over Mary and she became pregnant. And, and then Christ was born just like any other human being. So therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, who said? He, Christ, said he could talk before he came into the world. Before he was a baby in Bethlehem. He was obviously with the father, remember? Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. So Christ, remember Adam, when God made the animal skins for Adam and the woman after they sinned, they needed a savior all the way back then. That's why it says that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. How... I mean, Christ needed to have the role of Savior from the foundation of the world. So when he came into the world, he came to ratify all the people who are looking forward. So when Christ came, we don't look forward anymore. We look back at the cross. But everybody who was before the cross looked forward to the Messiah coming and paying for their sins. So they were looking forward, we're, but we who are after the cross look back at the cross. And that's what sustains us in terms of our salvation. So he says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. So when it was time for Christ to go to the cross, God prepared a body for him. How did he do that? Did he just snap his fingers and the body? He said, body be and body was. Nope. He prepared it in the same way. The nine months gestation period that all babies have in the womb are, is what God, how he brought Christ into the world. Same thing. Nothing. Christ became a human being, right? He didn't morph into a human being. He took on the nature of true humanity. 
Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In other words, all those animal sacrifices pointed to Christ. They really didn't satisfy God, but they were put in place for a time so that those who look forward to the coming of Christ could have some ritual to go with the reality that was in their soul. They saw Christ coming and paying for their sins. They were sacrificing animals, blood the blood of bulls and goats, in order to depict what was in their heart. But God was not satisfied by them. In other words, that wasn't the plan, that animal sacrifices would bring salvation. The plan was for Christ to come and actually pay for the sins of the whole world. And he did just that. So it says, you were, but he says, a body you prepared for me. How did he prepare it? He prepared it in Mary's womb. With verse 6, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. What, he was pleased in the sense that it was his will for them to do that, but he's not pleased in the sense that he was propitiated or satisfied with the work of the blood of bulls and goats. He wasn't. He, that was only to look forward to Christ. Verse 7, then I said, here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O uh, my God. So notice that the salvation plan is not part of the mystery, is it? Because the mystery was not revealed at all. It was hid in God. But it is written that Christ will come and do the will of God. See, that was not a mystery. That was part of the salvation component plan of God. First, verse 8, first he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I, am come, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy for the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Done. We have been made, you don't, you don't have to can make yourself holy. Remember, righteousness comes through Christ. And all you do is believe. And what happens? You are made holy once for all. Can't be no more holier right now if you're saved, you can't be any more holier right now than you will ever be. No matter, it doesn't depend on how many works. Holy means God set you apart and you are acceptable to God through the person of Jesus Christ. Back to our notes. We've got much more ground to cover. Point number C, 2C, the dynamics of our Lord from heaven are important for us to see. And we need we need to understand this because we are we have a special relationship to every other person born at any other time in this world. First Corinthians fifteen forty five through forty nine helps us understand that. Let's get to it. First Corinthians fifteen forty five through forty nine. I'll go quickly because our time is running. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. 
the, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Notice the differences in the roles of all, um, of both Adams. Notice both of them are called Adam, which means man. Both of them are called that. The first man, Adam, Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Let's, let's dig into this a little more, Paul, why don't you? Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. So he's talking about man. Adam was only man. There was no God-man in Adam. Adam was strictly a human being. That's it. There was no more dynamics to him other than the fact that he was from the earth and he had a soul and a spirit. There was an invisible part of him, but he died spiritually. We never saw that, what that spiritual life was in Adam. We can only see that Adam was spiritually, once he ate the fruit, that is, he was spiritually dead. And every person born in Adam was born spiritually dead, bereft of spiritual life. So the, the last Adam, it says, a life-giving spirit. So, so where the first Adam failed and didn't, and all of Adam's progeny was dead in their transgressions and sins in which we used to live, all of us were dead. The second or last Adam became a life-giving spirit, meaning he satisfied the requirements of God and was able to give life to all those in the, in the first Adam who were dead. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, in Adam, all die. And that's what he means, right? Well, Adam had life when he was born, but then he lost it. But then he lost it for all of his race. Every person born in Adam was born dead. Dead meaning no, no spiritual life. But Christ came along and he was a life-giving spirit. It says right here. And then, so the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Still speaking of the two. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. There he is. When God created Adam, he created him on the spot right there. And then he imputed the life that he had created to the, the body that was laying there, that he had formed out of the dust. And then it says that Adam became a living soul or a soul having life. That's the first Adam from the dust of the earth. The second man though, even he's from, he's of heaven. Well, what a difference. First man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Wow, I just jumped to. Listen, if he's, a, he's a man, but he is from heaven. He's a, if, if he was from heaven, he preceded uh, all things. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who created Adam. He's of heaven. But yet, second man is of heaven. Let's continue. We know who that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. 48. As was the earthly man, 
so are those who are of the earth. So this to say, if you are from the earthly man and he creates progeny, he has offspring, then the offspring are going to be just like he is. Well, what was he? He was born, he was dead because he sinned. He, he was, he needed salvation. So, and, and it is that everyone born in Adam is dead as well. All in Adam, as we said, all die. So we can see how all the offspring is um, after the first man. As was the, verse 48 clears that. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man. Okay, so now what about the progeny of the heavenly man? So also are those who are of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Wow. Wow. We are heavenly beings. We are not of this world. We're not of this earth, even though there is a component about us that is. We are after the heavenly man. Just notice that. We could say the God man. So are those who are of heaven. So we are, we take on the properties of the heavenly man, not the earthly man. And just and here, verse 49, and just as we are born the image of the earthly man, so we look just like the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Wow, that's off the charts of what that is. Wow. Everything that extends from the heavenly man, the God man, is a part of who we are because we're just like him. Back to our notes, much more could be said there as well. That's the dynamics of our Lord from heaven. They're important for us to see. Point D, Christ entering the world was according to the plan, this is point D, according to the plan to take back the scepter from Satan. Here's the things that he came to do. I think I summarized them all in point D. I meant to break these out a different way, but let's just say them. Three things happened. So Christ entering the world was according to the plan to take back the scepter from Satan. That's Colossians 2.15 where it talks about how Christ defeated Satan and his evil angels, principalities and powers. He defeated them, triumphed over them by the cross. So Christ, uh, one aspect of it is that he, uh, Satan gained rulership of this world and it also calls him the God or prince of this world. Christ gain that back he will take satan out when he comes in the second coming and he will throw him in the abyss he will rule this world as it says with a rod of iron christ will come and take the reins of this world from satan and he will rule this world christ came to do that to win he did win and then he came for the salvation of all so if we look at first john 2 2 it is, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That's First John two two. So he came. Everybody uh, will not be saved. God's not willing that any should perish, but God made provision through Christ for everybody to be saved. He paid for the sin of every person that would ever be born on planet Earth. 
So that covers it. He is the satisfaction. All they have to do is believe in Christ. And people need to know that. This is part of the gospel that God is not counting our sins, our trespasses against us. That is part of the gospel message. Although it's not uh, told in that way, that's 2 Corinthians 5.19. It's not told that way, but it is the reality. So whatever sins you commit, I mean, whatever they may be, God's not counting them against us. That's not the issue. I know it sounds kind of like I'm being lawless here, but it is not. I'm just telling you the gospel. We can't pay for even one of our sins, not even one. If you were to pick whichever one sin you would like to pay for, you can't even do that because Christ took all of the sins that you committed and he was already judged for them. So God the Father is not looking for any punishment or justice or anything. He's satisfied. He says, well, whatever. He said, Christ's sacrifice, I'm satisfied in his work on your behalf. So I, I'm not holding any sins against you at all. So now, just believe in my son and you will have eternal life. Sin is not the issue in salvation, as we always say. And then, this last thing, that's one, that's one thing he did to wrench the scepter out of Satan's hand. Two, for the salvation of all, right? And three, let me turn this speaker off. I'm getting a little back noise here. Stand by. There. So for the salvation of all mankind, right? That's two. And we already talked about that First John 2. It didn't mean that all mankind will be saved, but whosoever will, let him come. And then three, and to bring many sons into glory. This is Romans 8, 29, where it talks about, uh, well, I'll just turn to it real quick. Romans, this is the third thing Christ's coming does. It says here, for those God foreknew, this is a word that speaks of before time began, before creation of all things. We were foreknown. He also predestined. Another word that is before creation began. This is God. Remember, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Well, this is what they were talking about. He predestined, right? He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Christ is our Lord. That's what that is to say. He has the preeminence, even though uh, we're born, born again in him. And we're predestined to be conformed to his very image. That's what it means to be in Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What? This is going back to before time began, before creation, all the way to the end of human history. And these two verses are summed up. Everything right, that, that pertains 
to all things, to us, and for God's eternal purpose. So back to our notes. Oh, in Hebrews 2.10, well, that is the verse that talks about bring, and bringing many sons to glory. Uh, I'll just read it. Hebrews 2.10 says, And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through that or through what he suffered. This, I mean, we have covered some of these verses already. This is why I say some of this would be sort of like a review for us. But it should be ever in your mind. You should never not know these things. Okay, and then we're going to point number three. Point number three is, um, now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. So we'll quickly go over these points. Jesus is speaking of his entire mission summed up. After dealing with the death, burial, and resurrection, he will go back to the Father. Acts 1.9. How did he leave here? If we go to Acts 1.9, we see it right there. Um, I'll read it. It's very clear. After he said this, now this is Pentecost, right? This is just before Pentecost. He was with the disciples for 40 days. Uh, and then 10 days, he told them to wait. And that was after his crucifixion or Passover. He died on Passover, um, the preparation that is. And then um, 50 days later is Pentecost. So that's why we call it Pentecost. But it was also the coming of the Spirit. So this is, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he went up, so he just went, just kept going up, up, up. And he went up so high that the clouds, all they could see was clouds. They couldn't see him anymore. He had gone into space and then he had ascended to the third heaven. So that's how he left here when he says, and leaving the world and going back to the Father. That's where he was going, back to the Father. Point B, this is initially why the disciples were emotionally upset, <clears throat> because he was leaving. That was the whole point of the discourse. If you go back to John 14, 1 and 2, John 16, 7, um, you know John 14, 1 and 2. So we already know this. Don't let your hearts be troubled, 14.1. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If, if it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Think about it. Use your logic. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So, so, and then uh, 16, 7, uh, 16, 7 says, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what happened? Christ ascended 10 days later. He sent the Spirit at Pentecost. And you can read all about it as well. 
So, um, point C, Jesus is going back to the Father because his mission on earth is done. Now, the spirit of truth would come just like he has, just as he has been promising. Just we, we just covered that. Point D, what is Jesus doing now? What's happening? Uh, and here's what the verse says. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, that's resurrection, is seated at the right hand of God. He ascended, and that's where, he, when he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand means the place of highest honor, right? Because he conquered, he, he did all those things we talked about. And is also interceding for us. So there's more work he's doing while he is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God, he is interceding on our behalf. He's also, so we already know also, because he already said earlier that the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us with groans, which cannot be uh, uttered or uh, spoken. So, so Christ also is, he's in heaven right now interceding for us. He's gone back to the Father. He didn't just say, well, I'm home. <laughs> I'm going to my room and I'm tired. I'm going to sit down. No, he's gone back to work interceding for us. So there's, um, um, and that's clear, but there's also clear statements of Jesus to help us understand. This is point E, to help us understand his and our future. So I put these verses together. Hopefully, um, there's 10 of them. I can go through them very quick, but... I won't turn to everything. I'll just quote it as I know it. So first thing, Jesus said he was going to the Father to prepare a place for us. And he says, if that were not so, would I have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you? Notice, to prepare a place for us. If there was already a place for us, he wouldn't have to prepare it. The fact is that we belong there now. This place is our home. This is where we belong now. This is a place for us. And that's where we are now, heavenly beings. Remember we're talking about the man from heaven, the one from heaven. We belong there. It would be one thing if he said, well, I'm carving out some land for you on the earth. Because, yeah, Israel has that land, but now here's some land that I'm granting you on the earth. No, that's not what he said. He said, for us, there's a place, but it's in the third heaven. That's where we belong. So much more we could say about that. Let's talk about it in Q&A. Point two, we know that as long as we are at home in the body, this is the quote, quote, as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So the Lord, where's the Lord? He's in heaven. He's at the Father's house. He's preparing a place for us. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 6 that says that. Point number three. But when we go through death, in other words, we pass, we, we call it passing away. We don't, or falling asleep. These are terms Christians use for physical death. When the body cannot sustain you on earth any longer, you, your soul and spirit leave the body along with your consciousness. 
and we are said to be, quote, at home with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Well, we know what the Lord is and we know what he's doing there. Point, that was point three, that what happens when we die. Point four, then when we get our resurrection bodies, right? This is another time. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's, that's 1 Thessalonians 4.14. So now we know that people who do pass away in death, they're home with the Lord. Well, and then here's another way to say it. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, fallen asleep doesn't mean they don't have consciousness. It means their bodies don't. If you look at a, a, if you look at a person who has died, it looks just like they are asleep. They're really gone, though. They're not there. The body slumps down and looks like it's sleeping. So it's, a, it's just a metaphor for you know, what happens when Christians leave. But really, it looks the same when unbelievers leave because their, their souls go somewhere too. They're not there. So, so this is what it says. God will bring with Jesus, so they're already with him, those who have fallen asleep. They're in heaven, right? Because he says to be absent from the body and be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Well, that means they had to, the soul and the spirit, the body slumped down on the earth, sleeping, the soul and spirit go to be present with the Lord. So that's point three, right? Uh, that's four, four we already talked about. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So he, they're in heaven. When God comes back and he leaves, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 5.5, the order, here's how it is. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, that means people who haven't fallen asleep, still alive, right? They're, they still are in their physical bodies, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, those who have fallen asleep means death, they've died. But the people who haven't died aren't going to go get their resurrection bodies before those who have fallen asleep. Oh, how will it be? Verse point six. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ, their bodies are dead because they are already he already brought them with him right now he's uniting them with these bodies right? he's going to raise these bodies the dead in christ will rise first so get that so we won't precede them but this is how it's going to go down the dead in christ will rise first that's first thessalonians 4 16 7 how long will it take in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. How fast? In a, in a flash. How fast? In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. I mean, just like that, all these things will happen. We will be changed. That's what it says, 1 Corinthians 15, 
52, 8. What will happen after this? Quote, after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that word caught up is where we get the word rapture. It means to be caught up, to be snatched up, to be uh, lifted up, caught up together with them. Who's them? We're talking about the, the bodies. Well, Jesus is bringing the soul and the spirit when he comes from heaven, remember. And then he's resurrecting their bodies so that he's joining their bodies and their, their new bodies and their soul and the spirit. And then what about us? We are caught up and we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, just like that, and caught up with them. So we're all together, where it says together with them in the clouds. This is the first time in the history of the church where everybody is together. Everybody, and, the, and not just everybody, but the completed church, the number of all who would ever be in the church or ever could be in the church is done right here. This is where the whole church now comes together and for the first time. And to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This is our destiny. Point nine. Remember, we are the church. And what is the church? His body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And point ten. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So notice, how are you going to please him if you're unconscious? When you're in heaven, you can please the Lord. That's what it says. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body, that means we're physically alive on the earth, or away from it. Away from the body means you've died. You've fallen asleep in Christ. But we make it our goal to please him. He's the Lord. We will have to stop at this point. But we will continue with this context next week. There's just a few more verses to go, but it is surely interesting. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this glorious truth that we have that has been so clearly elucidated in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for not only the wisdom that is here, but just the knowledge of the completedness of it all that we have. Thank you, Father, for providing and preserving your word. We thank you for those who are listening as well. We pray for that we will continue to be, uh, have the humility that we need in order for you to tell us more. And we can continue to learn about you and not only about you, but what you have made of us as those who are in the church, the dynamics of our spiritual life. And we pray for wisdom to be able to navigate this, this world that we're in at this time. So Father, we pray uh, for those in the church, wherever word is truth, wherever they may be, but we also pray for those who have this mind, wherever they are in the world, 
that all of us may get to this place where we are all together as one. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. It's because of him. It's for his sake. Amen. 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 Amen.